invite you to turn within your Bibles as the kids are dismissed to Tabernacle Express. Uh, turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter uh, 10. Matthew chapter 10. Or in the Red Pew Bible, that's uh, page number 921. 921. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. We are in an ongoing paragraph by paragraph. I preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And uh, we are in a, a connected paragraph uh, sermon that uh, is dedicated to preparing disciples for mission. And uh, so this is the uh, context in which we read these verses. Verse 24 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. In the last paragraph, uh, we had, we're met with colorful metaphors, and one of those was of the snake uh, having wisdom. Um, in this text, I'm kind of carrying that metaphor over. Uh, snakes are also fearful uh, creatures, and they don't like to be noticed. Uh, remarkably, Snakes are deaf uh, creatures. Uh, they're deaf to sound pressure. Uh, they actually sense uh, vibrations in the room. They don't internalize them. They have to vibrate through their exter ex external uh, layers. into. The, and they can literally, if they go into a room, though, they have an intense acuity to be able to sense a mood, if you will, in a room. Now, it's true that they're cautious, and uh, they, in the bush, they can sense larger animals, and they can sense larger and people coming, and they try to scurry away before, uh, and it's wise for them to do so before they enter into any conflict uh, with, with others. And uh, they're commended, you know, they're commended for their wisdom and the ability to avoid unnecessary danger. Um, in this sermon, now, in this paragraph, Jesus advises us, though, like a snake, to be realistic about danger and to avoid that which we can, but not to avoid all danger at any cost. Risk assessment, and we all do risk assessments in life. We ask ourselves, should we or shouldn't we do some sort of activity? But risk assessment is not an end, 
in itself. And we must be careful as Christians not to make risk assessment the highest goal of serving Jesus. Uh, we do live in a very risk-averse culture, and uh, I personally have theories that this is a largely in part due to insurance companies who've gradually broken our spirit as wild and free Americans. Uh, we've, we've been conditioned, actually, to avoid risk uh, in our workplaces. Now, I understand no one wants to lose an arm in a workplace environment, but a lot of common sense has flown by the, wind, by the wayside as well. And uh, public relations as a field of study is actually a science that's uh, uh, to read the culture in the room about what kinds of things you should say and shouldn't say and, and, and how will it be perceived by others around you. <laughs> but when Christ calls us to follow him, he did not ask us to retreat from risk at all cost. He did ask us to be effective in mission and to be willing to embrace risk for the sake of his name. In this text, I'm going to develop five principles that, that demonstrate that effective mission does not retreat from risk, rather it prioritizes an allegiance to our Heavenly Father. It prioritizes an allegiance to our Heavenly Father. As I said, risk assessment is inevitable, and when we're confronted with danger, we've got to evaluate, and that's very normal, and there are variables to consider. For example, during Soviet Russian occupation, or, or persecution rather, of the church, when the Iron Curtain existed, the true church chose not to go absolutely public. They evaluated risk, and instead they worshiped God underground so that they would not all be taken to the gulag. There needed to be some risk assessment to assess a future generation for Christian witness on the other side of Russian persecution. Yet, they did not stop worshiping altogether. They did not stop teaching their children truth, even though those children were going into dangerous territory in their schools. Risk always presents need for prudence, yet each in Russia were willing to go to the gulag if God would allow that to be part of what he would have for them. They prioritized allegiance to their heavenly father. And so effective mission does not retreat from risk, rather it prioritizes allegiance to our heavenly father. And so let's look at this text and break it down into some principles for us that we can can carry with us. And, and the first principle that we see in verses 24 and 25 is that we, we are called to embrace a new place, our new place in a new household. Now, verse 16 here is, uh, excuse me, verse 24 is kind of like a bridge, uh, a bridge transition. 24 and 25, there's several uh, contrasts and comparisons of, of a disciple and a teacher, servant, master, a member of a household, and then the head of the household, and the relationship that they have for one another. And it's a, it's, it's a bridge, much like we saw in the last sermon, in which 
verse 16, if you, you look at the metaphors of sheep and wolf and snake and dove, there's these metaphors to help kind of move our minds into a new topic. And here, the end metaphor of the household seems to be the direction of these contrasts or comparisons. And each are really easily able to be understood. I mean, when you, when you go and you, you go to school, you admire, hopefully, your teacher, and you want to be like your teacher, but you never assume that you will be above your teacher, but hopefully someday you will be able to be like your teacher. And gradually over time, it is true, if you are a part of Christ's household, you will one day be like your Heavenly Father, but you will not be above your Heavenly Father. You will not be above Christ, and gradually your identity is going to change. You're going to be a lot more like Him over time. You see, after Pentecost, Peter and John, standing in the temple, were boldly proclaiming, not fearing the, the, uh, the ramifications of their preaching. And when they were rounded up and arrested, the leaders of the temple made this observation that they had been with Jesus. And it's helpful for us to recognize that, that being a part of a new household is going to change us to become more like the head of our household. Now, in this text, there are some subtle metaphors as well, broadly even, that go beyond the first two verses, and I see a carryover of this last image of the household, allegiance to a heavenly father who is in charge of a household, and that motif kind of keeps going through this text. And um, if we are joining ourselves to a new household, that means that we may become alienated from an old household. We, we may have a biological family who is not of our new household, and it may cause tensions, it may cause disruptions as we've grown up with different traditions and a different kind of culture. We are embracing a new culture in a new family. Uh, culture is something that uh, maybe we don't always think about because we, we, it's all around us. It's the air we breathe. If you get a chance to travel and you go to a new place, you suddenly become more aware that you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, this past spring, as you know, I did travel to see some missionaries in the UK, and I felt pretty comfortable in the UK because they spoke my language. And, and yeah, they had an accent, but I could kind of think and figure out my way around. Different story when I went to the Netherlands. When I was in the Netherlands, yes, it was bilingual, but I had some problems with communication at times, and people weren't instantly recognizing what I was meaning. And furthermore, my cell phone didn't work on the continent, and I was feeling very vulnerable. I was feeling a little bit anxious, and to top it all off, I made a scheduling error, and at the last minute, I had to find a, 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 a hotel near the airport uh, right before my flight the next day. And what gave me particular comfort, though, was locating an American chain called Ramada. I thought to myself, hallelujah, I know something here. But that helped me. It was a sign and a symbol of a culture that I was comfortable with. 
when you embrace a new household, gradually over time, there's going to be a cultural shift in which you feel more comfortable with the people of God than the world. And that also comes with risk because Jesus says, you will be criticized, and if they call the head of God's household Beelzebub, you're also going to be called that or worse. Now, Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies, literally, but that's a metaphor. It actually, it actually has a more grotesque meaning, which means the Lord of the Manure Pile, where the flies congregate. And it was actually a, 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 a word of mocking that God's people used to describe the false gods in the land of Canaan around them. And eventually it became short form for talking about Satan as a false deity. See the mocking progression. But Jesus himself in his ministry was called basically Satan. And if that's true of Christ, we ought to expect that it would be also true of us. And we ought not run or be fearful of that kind of uh, degradation towards ourselves. There's a second principle here that I want us to look at in verses 26 to 27. Two verses that teach us about boldness. Let's read them again. Uh, verse 26, it says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. These two verses are interesting contrasts, and we have to dig a little bit to understand their, what they're getting at. But the first uh, discussion about, uh, you, know, you know, not being afraid of that which is going to be revealed and that which is hidden will become known um, is really him saying, don't be afraid of conspiracy done and designed to snuff you out. That's going to be exposed someday. Conspirators who seek to destroy the church are going to have their day in court, and they're going to learn the hard way. Uh, Matthew Henry, an uh, uh, old-time Puritan uh, Bible commentator preter, preacher, said that there will be a resurrection of names as well as bodies at the last day. Why might that be a comfort to us? Because judgment will be brought to the actual people whom others have forgotten. Those things that we say, I wish that if we could just get to the root of it, we would be, you know, freed from all of the problems. I think we think in our political minds, we think about all that goes down in Washington, we wonder how in the world does that happen and how do people get away from that? Someday, <laughs> there will be a judgment day. And actual names to actual crimes will be revealed and justice will be had. Jesus is saying, you don't have to be afraid of conspiracies that may be out there that are trying to snuff out the church. Don't be afraid. I'm seeing everything that's going on. And one day, there will be a reckoning. Now, there's a contrast here because in the second verse, verse 27, I believe, 
it says here that um, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And in contrast to the conspiracy of the wicked, there's almost like a, a, a conspiracy, in quotes, that Jesus has in which he's telling his disciples something in private that's going to get proclaimed on the housetops. And don't be afraid to, while I'm talking with you directly right now, don't worry, the day is coming where you're going to boldly proclaim that to the world. Don't be afraid to proclaim it. And Jesus shared with his closest disciples some very hard doctrines about the kingdom of heaven. And it might be something that would be perhaps awkward to share in a public setting, in which if you you want to see heaven and you want to be there counted among God's people, you must be born again. You've got to be born again by the Holy Spirit, and that is a very hard teaching because that's not something that we can do on our own. The Spirit has to do that work for us and through us deeply in our hearts. John 3, 7 through 8, at night, in private, Jesus said, Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. The winds blow where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And while you speak the truth, you also have to say it with love, that unless you bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit in this lifetime, one day you're going to bend the knee when it's too late. That is a hard truth to say in a public setting, and people will say, you're judgmental. You shouldn't be in the public square. What in the world? Who gave you the right to judge us? It's the truth. And we have to be bold to represent our new household with a new DNA that says that we have been born again by the Holy Spirit. We do have an old household. We have an old household that is against us, that doesn't have eyes to see, and they mock. But did you know that you are actually free to mock the head of your former household? Satan, who is the lord of the manure pile, you can mock him, and you have nothing to fear. He is a little man. He is a deep fool. Martin Luther had what some might say a very hypersensitive sensitivity to the satanic presence. He once advised a friend who was tempted to despair over his salvation to, quote, laugh your adversary to scorn and ask who it is with whom you are talking all, by all means, flee solitude, for the devil watches and lies in wait for you most of all when you are alone. This devil is conquered by mocking and despising him, not by resisting and arguing with him. It's actually ironic that on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed a set of 95 arguments against the demonic teachings of the Middle Ages. I find it remarkably. The medieval church was held captive to doctrines of demons. But
But Satan is a defeated foe, and he is a fool. Luther even suggested taking the meaning of Beelzebub, Lord of the Menorah Pile, seriously. Dare I even say it? No, I think I'll actually let Luther say it. Quote, Almost every night when I wake up the devil, the devil is there and wants to dispute with me. I've come to this conclusion. When the argument that the Christian is without the law and above the law doesn't help, I instantly chase him away with a pharisen, which is German for breaking wind. Apparently, flatulence has its uses. Yet, Luther does caution against arrogant flatulence. And so I would suspect that whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And uh, you wouldn't expect that in a church service, would you? But we have a defeated foe who deserves to be mocked. Stand boldly, walk as free people. There's a third principle in this text in which we ought to remember our immense privilege to be in Christ's household. Verse 28. Verse 28, we read this. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. There are many things in life that do cause us to fear. Fear may be caused by what we see or what we perceive that could be even imagined. We, we can imagine things that will affect us that may not even ever happen. That's not to say that the emotion of fear is any less real, but I know someone who has a t-shirt that says, uh, faith over fear. And uh, faith is actually a better way to use your imagination to help you to visualize your heavenly Father who will guard your life with His own. You have a heavenly Father who will guard your life with His own. That's immense. That's liberating and should break the tyranny of fear that we may feel overwhelming us. See, when dealing with people who you can see, you're able to then look at, you look at people, but the problem is, is if people are coming at you, it's hard then to visualize that which you don't see. Now, in this text, we could get all bogged down about, you know, body, soul, and spirit, and that type of thing, but really, the point is really simple. The point is really simple. People can only hurt us so much. God can send us to hell permanently. That's a simple message. But he won't do that for his children. You're a part and you have privilege to be in a, a household, the divine household. So really it's wiser to fear people, excuse me, rather it's wiser to transfer what you, you fear about people and bring that over to God. If you're inclined to worry about what your government might do to you, who wields the sword or has access to the FBI, turn that fear to God. 
who wields eternal separation from hell and then say, hallelujah, he's not going to send me to hell. Fear evolves in that instance and becomes faith. God, who is, as this verse 28 tells us, that he is a judge, is now changed into that of a heavenly father. He is there for us, not against us. He wields immense power to bring his children into the kingdom of heaven, and he guards heaven from those who should not be there. It's immense privilege to be a part of his household. There's a fourth principle here that I want to draw our hearts to is verse 29 through 31, in which we are to recognize why you are of more value than sparrows in Christ's house. Again, along this household metaphor, I see almost an illusion. I, I bet it is an illusion that Jesus is making here to Psalm 84. And I wonder, too, if walking through the temple, Jesus would have taken note of that those little birds making nests in the house of God. Psalm 84 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrows find a home, and the swallows a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. It's a beautiful picture. The priest or the, the, the sons of Korah who wrote that psalm observing, observing the, 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 the sparrow making nests, not within a reasonable distance from the altars of God. And it also, in the fine observation of little insignificant animals like that and taking notice of them, I, I see that there is an observation that God, God takes care of these and it's remarkable because we also created in the image of God, we can also then transfer back a sense that if we who are evil are able to pay attention to little sparrows, little birds, have pets and things, how much more God would put his effort upon us. If you had told me last year that we would be naming chickens, let alone having chickens, I tell you, you're crazy. Well, in the last year, I've also seen Abby become a chicken mama. Uh, but we're still green at it. We still don't half know what we're doing. And we actually thought that we had a chicken with sour crop. I don't know if you know what sour crop is. We, it looked like a big bulge in the neck. And uh, we thought it was an infection caused by impacted food that wasn't getting through the gizzard and down. And uh, so Abby had me, after looking at a video of how to solve this problem, Abby had me holding a chicken like a bagpipe underneath my arm, massaging the, this crop, sticking my finger in its beak, and turning it over to induce vomiting. And I said to myself as I'm doing this, what in the world am I doing for this chicken? What we would do for those who are in our care, 
be encouraged. You are of more value than sparrows. Jesus did not come to spill his blood for birds, but for people. And our value is proportional to the cost. It's of infinite, infinite value. If you ever take time to doubt, if you ever have time to doubt your own value in God's eyes, then consider the infinite knowledge that he even knows how much hair is left on your head. How much hair is left. You knew I had to say that, right? The knowledge that God has of your life is immense and you are precious to him. And that ought to give you the capacity to overcome the risk of standing up for him in mission. There's a fifth principle here that I want us to see in verse 32 to 33. We ought to also take seriously our covenant relationship in Christ's household. Verse 32 to 33. Uh, we read these closing words, and really my big idea is kind of framed because this is all moving in this direction about having allegiance. Verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father is, who is in heaven. We are not to retreat from risk, but rather to prioritize an allegiance to our Heavenly Father. Uh, the word translated acknowledge in verse 32 is the Greek word homo legeo. Homo means the same and word, log, logos, the word, saying the same thing. If, you're, if you, you, you express openly that you, you agree that He is your Heavenly Father, and you profess an allegiance to him, and you confess him before men, it will be guaranteed God is going to be there to represent you at the last judgment day. Now, standing up for him may actually be a good way to think about this word about acknowledgement, because it is a combination of love and faith for God which makes our faith visible to other people. Like, we, we love God and we believe that He exists, therefore we're going to make visible to other people our association with Him. Now, John Calvin, who we might associate with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, said this of this text. He said something quite shocking, quite surprising. He said, if a man runs away or keeps silence... Is he not, by frustrating the work of the Son of God, taking himself out of the family of God? That's stated for effect. And really, this is a theological text, and the doctrine of baptism aligns perfectly with this text. To leave the crowd, to get into the boat and go with Jesus... To be a true disciple, we must be willing to humble ourselves in the face of others. I've been to sporting events 
And I've observed <laughs> some really radical spectators, right? They're all mega fans. They're painted from top to bottom. They, 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 they look like they could be the mascot. And they're wearing icons that demonstrate their loyalty to the team. Now, the early church practiced a believer baptism in, in obedience to what Christ said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is an initiation that says, I'm now on the team of the true and living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is three in one. I am a part of this household. I'm no longer a part of the old household. In practical terms, what did this mean? It meant challenging people to take a step forward, to expose themselves to others around them, to make it known to others that they were going to take a stand for Christ. Passing through the waters was a visual demonstration that you had, you've been born again. It's like you're coming up out of the water. You're coming out of the amniotic fluid. You're, you're born again. This is, this is new. I'm a new person. You used to know me as the fornicator. Well, now I am the follower of Christ. It's a change. It's a distinction. Now, in our culture, sometimes baptism has been taken very lightly as, as if it's a non-essential. I would beg to differ that it is very essential. And whatever you do, even if you become baptized as a follower of Christ, then you are making a statement, a clear statement, that you're not going to be a Christian in name only. You are going to be following him with all of your heart and with all of your might because you love him and you believe in him. You know, you can take yourself out of a marriage, but can you really take yourself out of a covenant relationship with God? Can anything separate us from the love of Christ if we don't fulfill our obligation as a follower of Christ? How is it possible if Christ had promised an unswerving loyalty to his children, that he would then deny that name before his heavenly father. Well, it could be that those who claim to be are actually not his children. Let me say it another way. Disloyalty to Christ's household ought to make us question the genuineness of our relationship with Christ. True Christians, though, will not make excuses or they will not cover over patterns that they have been living in. They expose their pride, they expose their sin, and then they don't move further away from Christ, they move closer to Him, giving recognition that He truly is their head of household and not Beelzebub. Effective mission will not make excuses or cover over. Effective mission does not retreat. 
Rather, it prioritizes an allegiance to our Heavenly Father. Again, I said we live in a, a risk-averse world, and it's just kind of like in the culture and air that we breathe. We have hedge funds to make sure that we don't lose our investments. We want to make sure that while we are losing in one investment, we're gaining in another, and so if in the end, maybe it cannot kind of offset each other. Now, prudence is not wrong, but a refusal to stand for Jesus Christ when all of the chips are down that's wrong. Family loyalty is such a high value to all of us. We, we want to, to guard our own families. The question is, to what household do you belong? Jesus, the Son of God, went into the wilderness. After his baptism, he was led by the Spirit to go into, into conflict with Satan. Wasn't that risky business to go into to the wilderness without any water or any food supplies? Right? But Jesus knew who, he had, who had his back. You may remember that that wilderness experience occurred immediately after his public baptism. And at the public baptism, we heard those beautiful words, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you have a public baptism that you can remember? Do you have a moment when you said, no turning back? I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm not returning to the old household. By declaring beneath the waters and arising, it is a declaration before men that you are part of a new household. And no matter what may come, you'll be able to look back at that baptism as Christ looked back at his. Will you be a loyal to Christ when Beelzebub comes to tempt you and try to get you to doubt your heavenly home? Will you stray from the congregation? Feel free to mock Satan. He is a fool, and he is already defeated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time in the Word this morning. I ask, Father, that you would work within our hearts to sense the reality of your presence. If there are things that have clouded our lives and we've quenched them,